Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project, a podcast for maintenance and reliability people to better themselves both at home and at work. Now let's get rolling. Welcome back to Rob's Reliability Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. On this week's episode, I welcome Michelle Ledette Henley, Susan Lubell, Cliff Williams, and Martha Myers to the show. We take audience questions and we discuss all aspects of culture change in maintenance and reliability. I hope you guys enjoy this one because this is something that we talk often about in reliability and yet it's not done very well throughout industry. If your company sells products or services to engage maintenance and reliability professionals, tell your marketing manager about Rob's Reliability Project. I'm offering new advertising packages with my live Q&A webinar style format. So if you're interested in those, hit me up, robsreliabilityproject at gmail.com. And lastly, if you haven't yet, subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform and tell your colleagues about Rob's Reliability Project. We're trying to spread the word here of reliability. So I hope, I hope this podcast helps you and helps your colleagues. Now, thanks for listening. Now let's get into the interview with this week's expert panel. So welcome back. Welcome back to Rob's Reliability Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. This week, we have another special panel of guests. We have Cliff Williams from People and Processes. We have Martha Myers from Martha Myers Consulting. We have Michelle Henley from the Manufacturing Game. And we have Susan Lubell from Step Consulting. Guys, how are you? Good. Hey. Thank you. No, thanks for joining us today. I think this is this for me is week 10 on lockdown. And this is the ninth webinar. I did have one that, you know, last week we didn't do one because I was getting a little burnt out and I didn't line everybody up. So this is our ninth webinar. So we're rolling full steam ahead. So I wanted to have you guys on today to talk about changing culture and getting that buy-in because as we all know, you know, the reliability fundamentals have been around for decades, RCM, we're talking late 60s, early 70s. And yet, we all go to plants and we all see these cultures that are broken. We all see not reliability success. So the first question we got in from the audience was, and just FYI, if you're on the call and you have questions, just type them in the chat and I'll definitely pose them to the group. But the first question we got was, how can you initiate reliability culture change when you're a mid-level manager and you do not directly supervise the maintenance team? Cliff, do you want to kick us off? Sure, Rob. The first part that I would answer to that question is that if you're thinking that reliability belongs to the maintenance team, you're actually starting off on the wrong foot. (laughs) I know you're expecting that. I know it's my usual answer, but... If it's, you know, one and one makes two, it makes two. I can't change that for for another reason. But the challenge is that that the culture is the culture of the organization and a reliability culture is a reliability culture of the organization. Um, So you can play a part, but uh, if if you're not managing the maintenance teams, if you're not managing any of the teams, then it really is education education and communication, how can we, you know, sort of start to enlist people to get people to, and the best way of, of, uh, you know, starting that conversation is to look at what are the objectives that the company has and are we meeting them? And if we're not meeting them, then start to dig deeper. And that's the beginning of the conversation. And then it's a very long conversation and a long long journey after that. Um, But you have to get rid of the idea that it's a maintenance issue and understand that it's an organizational issue and then start the conversation. Um, and, and then hopefully you can build on that. Now, Michelle, like when you go into an organization, like Cliff talks about objectives, like how often do you see these sort of hidden objectives or, you know, individuals that are in management positions, they have their own sort of personal objectives that they don't talk about. Like how, how often do you see stuff like that? 
it's fairly common and and what i find with most organizations we go into is they're very unclear about what their objectives are um, they may have the the cool poster up on the wall that says you know the generic thing that we could all fill in we strive to provide the highest quality blah 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 but when you look at is that really what people do and the answer is not really and so I think it's one of the, the things that most organizations struggle with is, is kind of that question of who are we and what is it that we do? Um, not the bland sort of consultant speak, but kind of at, at heart, what is it that we're trying to do? And I think because that message doesn't exist officially in, in a lot of organizations, um, then you get all the subcultures. And so you've got this group that does that and this group that does that. And a lot of times it's driven by big personalities versus what's really best for the company. And I, I think sometimes that's a, a real challenge that organizations face when they're trying to change their cultures is they have trouble saying what their culture is to, to begin <laughs> with. Yeah, I, I think that's something super common and, and I see it a lot in safety. Like almost all the companies I work for, they say safety is number one. And yet some of the actions that they take never aligned to that especially now when we're talking about like budgets are getting slashed and, and that type of thing where we, we may not have money to spend and yet but yet we're taking on these safety risks that we probably should so it's just an interesting time now sue you know you, you've done a lot of work with you know changing culture or you know getting into these sort of leadership positions where you're you're sort of changing the mindset of the site you want to talk about like how does that start and like where do you go i think one of the biggest things for me is to recognize that every organization um, and every individual is at a different stage of their journey and it's really important to meet them wherever they are so even if the um, organization as a whole thinks that they're very mature they may or may not be, and individuals within that may or may not be. So much like uh, Cliff talked about education, I look at it as capacity, competency, capability building. So I tend to meet people wherever they are, and it could be at a different spot for different um, groups or different individuals within the organization. And a large part of it is um, demo by doing, um, I was in at a organization uh, a few months ago and, you know, you walk in, they're in the middle of a massive org change. They need teams brought together. They're struggling to meet um, requirements. A big part of it is nobody has showed many of the staff what to do. So it's not only do, I would sit with particularly some of the mid-career engineers the reliability and we talk through let's walk through that rca thought process just the two of us on this whiteboard right or hey we need to meet these regulatory obligations what are the things you're thinking about and have you considered this and so for me i end up in a lot of a supervisory but more of a coaching supervisory when i go in as a consultant and i find um having spent 25 years within a company as an employee and now doing much more in and out, um, I, you know, you show up and my three month improvement exercise seems to always keep getting renewed. A big part of it is recognizing that we want to build a competency within the staff. And to me, wherever you are in your journey, they need to be, as Cliff pointed out, integrated and aligned to that overall organizational goals and objectives. But uh, no one goes to work thinking they're going to do a bad job. Everybody needs to be helped to learn how to do this. It may not be in their skill set right now, but it easily can be. So Martha, you know, when you when you help companies in this culture change, like how, like what would you say are some of the biggest, you know, competency gaps that you see? Well, Rob, I wouldn't say I've actually been able to, uh, I've, I don't go in and change any culture. I, I wouldn't even say I'm an expert on uh, unculture, but thanks for inviting me on the panel. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I have worked in organizations where the, uh, the culture wasn't there for sure. And, uh, and I was, but I, I've joined a company, you know, 
thinking that, you know, I was going to, we're going to change, change the world and, and make it better. And our, our team was going to want to do, going to do it. And then after a few years, they've, they've, they've changed their minds and they've disbanded the team. And, and then I was the lone reliability person, which, you know, my favorite line was reliability is not a department. (laughs) No, it's not. And certainly not a person. Um, But uh, so I don't know if I can answer that question. I have worked uh, prior to uh, one, one place that I worked though, where the culture was there. And I think it, safety they had a good safety culture it was it was there prior to the reliability initiative that started like in the in the late 80s um or or, sorry i'd say mid 90s and because of having that safety culture i think that really helped with the reliability culture so that that to me is is one uh, area that uh, i think uh, if you have the safety culture and you treat the reliability initiatives similarly and you have that buy-in and support from above which i think is also critical uh you will succeed and it's not a short-term initiative either (laughs) (laughs) you have to see that it's a a long-term thing so cliff i saw i saw you shaking your head over there about reliability is not a department what do you think uh, I think I may have said that one. <laughs> I thought that was my line. Yeah. Uh, I made that up. No, it really, it, and, and that's the challenge is that people think it's a department. They, they call it a department, you know, and reliability is an outcome. There's no question about it. And, and same as safety is an outcome and all of these things. Uh, unfortunately, you know, thanks to this illustrious panel of uh, consultants, uh, we kind of drove that in the... Uh, in the early 2000s where everybody was changing from a maintenance person to a reliability person you know it's cool i am now good i remember talking with the company early 2000s clip speak for yourself i wasn't even driving a car then <laughs> okay okay some of us, some of us. Uh, but i remember talking to a company who were in, in the southern states who were saying that they were on a reliability initiative and they were going to hire sort of something like 90 reliability uh, managers or professionals because it was, it was a, you know, a, a very large company uh, in the paper industry. And um, so I said, that's great. I said, you know, I think that's excellent. I said, you know, where are you going to get these people from? And they said, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll probably uh, promote our maintenance managers. And I said, well, what will they do differently? And they said, <laughs> nothing much. You know, <laughs> that will be it. It will be. And so they changed their title. And, and they did nothing different and, and, you know, called themselves reliability people. Well, reliability is an outcome and, and, and similarly culture is an outcome. It, it's not a thing as such. It's an outcome of, of all the, all of the behaviors that exist in the organization. Um, so, but the, 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 the key word that we, we use and then kind of forget about is the word change. And it really doesn't matter whether it's a small change, a large change, or a culture change. It has to be managed. And, and that's where it starts to fall off the rails, is that we don't manage that change. We say we're going to do it. We put things in place and assume it's done. So it's a challenge. Mm-hmm. So maybe, Michelle, like I know we've talked before, you know, you've mentioned that some of these external motivation factors when we're trying to drive that change, they don't work. Do you want to kind of just break it down? Like what's, ex- what are external motivators, internal motivators? How do we, how do we see this? How do we approach this? Yeah. So when you think about, about motivation, one of the things that I think is, is really important is, is thinking about um, motivated to do what, right? So motivation isn't just a trait you have. You can be highly motivated to, go fishing and not highly motivated to go to the dentist, right? You're still the same person. So when you're thinking about motivation to, let's say, make, make this change to improve the way that you're, you're handling your, your equipment and managing your assets, um, then we, when we talk about motivation, you've got the extrinsic ones. So I refer to those as the, the three E's and the intrinsic or internal ones, the, the three P's. And um, the extrinsic ones can be very effective short term, um, long term, not at all. And so if you want something to last, 
which I would assume with improving changing culture, you would want that to last. You really need to figure out how to get at those, those internal motivations. So the three are play, purpose, and potential. So play is where the work itself is, is enjoyable. Um, I hesitate to use the word fun because people think that that means that it's trivial, um, but I, I don't mean it in a trivial way. I, I love to do computer programming. It's a weird, nerdy thing, but it's fun. It's, I, I enjoy that as much as going to the movie. Um, so maybe, I don't know if, if fun doesn't resonate with people, at least enjoyable, right? The work itself is something that people get a kick out of. The second one is potential or, um, sorry, uh, purpose. And so with purpose, you're looking at the work having meaning. So the work itself being very meaningful to people. This is one that I think is, uh, it's one that people can, could really tap into a lot and almost never do. And then the last one is potential. So it's where it's not necessarily the work you're doing right now is fulfilling, but it's the way to get you to where you want to be. So my stepson a couple of years ago graduated from college, didn't necessarily enjoy all of the studying and the test taking, but it's what he needed to do to be able to do the career that he's in today. Um, so again, let me go back to, to purpose. This is the one I think we have so much opportunity in and, and so infrequently used let people understand why they're doing what they're doing and what difference does it make to other people? You know, we work with a pipeline company that doesn't talk about, you know, our, our goal is to get natural gas from here to there. They say our job is to keep grandma warm. Our job is to keep the lights on at the hospital. Our job is to make sure that kids have schools that they can go to that have electricity and heat. You know, and so when you start looking at that from a, that other perspective of here's why what you do is so important, and, and then you can feed that all the way through. So it's not just the CEO that has an important job. It's every single person in the organization. Their job is, is important because of, of this benefit that we ultimately provide out there to the world, whatever that is in, in your industry. Yeah, I love it. <clears throat> and it's something we talked about on this show, I don't know now, four or five weeks ago when we did a podcast about like depression and mindset and performance. And one of the questions that came in was around, you know, these people who have these mundane jobs now that they, their full-time job is to wipe down stuff to keep it from spreading the virus. And basically what we ended up talking about was the purpose for this is to prevent others from getting infected, right? If potentially infected. And so, you know, it's like drawing that meaning, is important. And it's something that, you know, we struggle with, I think, as, as a community, but also in our own jobs, it's, it's easy to just get into the nuts and bolts of whatever RCA or RCM or whatever you're working on and hard to really connect it to why you're doing it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's all about the people. Now, Sue, you know, you did talk, touch a little bit about, you know, competency. And so I kind of want to dig back into that one. Like, I, something that, that Cliff mentioned that sort of resounded where it's like you rebrand these jobs from maintenance to reliability or, you know, you, you basically rebrand. And I'm sure. And I'm sure sorry? It's asset management now. Latest and greatest. Come on. You're behind the times. Well, no, but I, I mean, I think we've all, I mean, I've, well, not, maybe not we all, but you know, I was a mechanical engineer and then they dropped me into a mine and said, you're a reliability engineer now. And so, and then actually, you know, seven months ago, they said, you're an asset management engineer. Now, <laughs> now I would say I'm qualified to be an asset management engineer, but that's another story. So like, how often do you see people get dropped in, like basically they change their title or they say like, hey, you know, you're now reliability figured out or your asset Way too out. often. <laughs> and I think that that's a great lead in. I think one of the big things that I've been seeing and um, in my own career, I've been dropped into jobs before. Sometimes there's a great opportunity for learning, right? How, how better drop you into the fire and you're gonna sink or swim there. But the reality is that um, each of them requires different skills. And so part of being competent is having some formal education, uh, knowing how to apply that, and then showing the right attitude, aptitude, um, behaviors to put it all together. Um, and I think part of it is people, broad category, reliability is a huge field, right? 
And some people are going to be better at doing the detailed analytics to try to predict what's going on with asset health. Others are going to be better at facilitating an RCM or an RCA. Some others are going to be better at connect the dots on the business value from doing these improvements, while others are um, great at figuring out what a new business process could look like and making it the new way that's easier to follow than the old way, right? And bringing in that change management. So we have to realize that to say reliability is a broad field. And I think competency is about um, being aware of all of the different pieces and then recognizing where do your skills, where are your natural aptitude, attitude, and what training do you have? How do you bring that together to work with others? None of us sits in an isolated location and works away with our heads down and well, we all sit in isolated locations up, right? now. <laughs> right? We have to realize that to get work done, we're working collaboratively with others, but we bring different skill sets. So yeah. no, I like figure out what goal you want. You mean like a personal goal or the corporate goal? Both. And I often find as um in leadership roles, manager roles, and then moving into leadership roles, I end up with a fair amount of time spent with the HR department. So part of my role is to explain what does a maintenance engineer's core role, right? What does the process engineer do? What should we expect from a reliability engineer? And what sh should we be expecting from somebody who specializes in asset management with risk scenarios and how do they integrate with the process safety and things like that so it's not to say that you can't do pieces of the other jobs but what's your core work and where do you know enough to pull in the right specialists yeah really love it love it love it now martha you know over your career like how often would you say that the job that you were doing they actually knew what you were supposed to be doing who, who's they? <laughs> well, like, like, you know, you know, like often we'll talk about, you know, skills matrices or, yeah. you know, the job posting. And I, I, I think every job posting I've ever had for my job has never been actually what I've done. So. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think, well, most of where I joined like the reliability teams, um, our team definitely knew what we were supposed to be doing, but you're right. As far as communicating that out to the rest of the organization, what we were supposed to be doing was, was another thing, right? Especially it depends on how, how big the organization is. And, and fortunately or unfortunately, I guess I have worked with some fairly big organizations and, and I think that it, it does make it a lot more challenging uh, depending who the sponsor is on that, say that new team or, you know, um, I think the smaller the organization, probably the better in getting the word out as to uh, what your, uh, what your purpose is or how you're helping the company for sure. You know, maybe the bigger the, the organization that sponsorship has to come from the very top, right? I mean, I was, I remember um, uh, trying to, uh, well, working on, a, on an issue around actually safety showers and, and that across the, where I worked, I mean, brown water was coming out of the safety showers and the eye wash stations and, you know, it was a, but we started from, you know, have, coming up with a policy uh, a standard for purchasing new and uh, having spare parts on hand and and how to test them and so getting you know I was the lone person leading this project and trying to get the operators across the plant to understand why uh, we were making these changes and stuff but I was I was the one bringing uh, ice cream sandwiches to every shift to uh, to to plead the case of why this was important and but and honestly, and they were running like, who are you? <laughs> like, they didn't know who I was. But um, anyways, I, I guess I digress. But yeah. Michelle's going to tell you that the ice cream sandwiches aren't a sustainable strategy. 
<laughs> no, that's right. I was thinking about that. Quick hit. Good to introduce yourself. Work short term as long as, you know, not having brown water in your eyes is probably a really good intrinsic motivation <laughs> to get that right. Yeah, Sandwiches is no problem. What happens some of the time is that the, the organizations don't even know what they're hiring. You know, when they get into those positions, they figure out, oh, we can't do it. And I'll give you, a, this is a true, honest example from my life and experience where um, I was approached by a headhunter to went to a company and um, they were looking for somebody to, and it was advertised as to do with RCM and everything. So I sat in a room with two guys and they said, okay, uh, you know, what do you know about RCM? So, you know, I start my spiel about RCM and you get the strategies and the seven questions and they, and they were blank. There was nothing on their face. So I'm thinking, oh, oh perhaps I don't know about RCM. <laughs> so I started making stuff up, you know, well, you know, it'll get us to this point and it'll get us to that point. Still nothing. So then one of them said to me, he said, yeah, yeah, that's all good. That's good. That's fine. But what do you know about RCM? And I kind of, uh, and he said, you know, sort of the computerized systems. So I went oh, off no. on CIS. It turns out that company, the module that they used from their enterprise system was entitled RCM. And they were looking for somebody that could work with a computerized system. That's what they were looking for. So they weren't even looking for the right person. And I got the job and I'm still there. <laughs> I got the job. <laughs> that's like that's what i've seen recently is is a lot of postings they're called site reliability engineers maybe not recently but last year when i was looking for a job and they're looking for like coders or for people to manage websites and i think you gotta you gotta real real try to figure out what you're looking for for sure now cliff like when we talk about culture like how important or where do like how do we start with leadership like how do we get their buy-in and how do we get them to help us on you know as part of our reliability journey um it, it comes back to uh, we, we kind of talked about it everyone's talked about it and it's all around you know uh how do we cascade the goals because culture is i'll give you my quick definitions of culture and every will have their own is mine is it's it's the agglomeration of behaviors and those behaviors are driven by measures that are created by leaders so you have the leadership of the organization who will create measures that will drive you in the right direction you know it, it, you can have something like mttr mean time to repair great so what am i going to do a quick fix I'm going to get things back up and running as quickly as possible because my boss likes that because our MTTR is being reduced. It's not reaching the goals that we really want. So if we have, that's where leadership comes into play is that the leadership needs to develop the, the, the measures that are supportive of the organizational goals. What are we there for? You know, what is it that we're trying to do? And then, as Michelle said, you know, you make it meaningful as you're cascading it down so that the guy that's cleaning the table realizes that he's preventing, you know, sickness and things because his company doesn't want to be making people sick. They want to be a successful, you know, whatever it may be. And part of that is that, you know, they look after the people, they look after their clients, they look after. So it comes from the top and it, it comes in the way of measures and goals. And that's then how uh, the, the leadership affected, because at the end of it, um, you, you kind of get it. My favorite story about that, I, Michelle, you shouldn't have mentioned stories. Uh, Michelle mentioned stories. I just want to hear the one about the, the camera in the parking lot again. Oh, yeah. No, well, that's a different one. Yeah, we, if you've got time, we can do that one as well. <laughs> and I can actually do it on video, so it'll be okay. Um, <laughs> but no, my... my my favorite story about you know the goals and one of the things that happens is if we don't have that cascading goals then organize or departments will, will look internally they will look and they will say how can I be the best maintenance department that I can be that's not what we want you to be we want you to be the best maintenance department that supports these organizational objectives mm -hmm. and so my my favorite story about that is that you've got the uh, the um, the cruise ship orchestra that's playing on their cruise ship 
and uh, they're really, really good, and they win the award for being the best cruise ship orchestra in you know in the world. And they say, okay, this is back in the early 1900s, and they said, okay, the reward for this is you're going to go out next year on the latest, greatest, biggest liner ever, and it's going to be great. And they get on it, they look out of the side, and yeah, it's HMS Titanic. So the ocean, the, it gets out in the ocean, hits the iceberg, the liner is sinking, but they're keeping on playing. You know, they're keeping on playing. They're going to be doing everything because they want to be the best little orchestra in the world. Like, you know, stop playing, stop bailing, because you're not supporting, you know, the organization objectives of keeping people safe. And that's what happens if we don't have these cascading goals which will say to people, okay, now you can understand why your little bit here cascades all the way up and understands it and really supports what we're trying to do as an organization. So, and we won't, we won't do the parking lot one yet. <laughs> all I know is my heart will go on, right? <laughs> so, Sue, like, you know, we, Cliff talks about like departments sort of, you know, disconnects between departments and organizational objectives. Like I've seen that a lot with, in terms of spare parts management where, you know, like they're trying to cut basically all the, all the inventory that they hold where, you know, they're not really overall in terms of risk, the organization's taking on more like, you know, from an asset management point of view, like how, how do we roll all those things up? Or like, how often do you see this disconnect? The, the disconnect is real. It happens all the time. And I think one of the big things I can figure out is that if I am working, whether even if I'm working as an employee in sort of the, let's call it the head office central group, and I'm out working with different field sites, you know, we're across four provinces or something. If the frontline maintenance is complaining about supply management on spare parts, that's actually the sign of a fairly healthy organization, because if that's all they're complaining about, that's something we can deal with, right? <laughs> so like that's relatively, <laughs> it's relatively easy. If that is your biggest crisis, um, you can get people together. They, you can explain what the higher purpose is. And part of it is around how people get rewarded, which is why I also end up talking to HR a whole lot on compensation and uh, senior management in terms of metrics. So I pull in all those OE skills saying, you know what, you're right. If we try to strip out the number of spare parts we have over here and make supply management look better with their inventory, this is the risk you're taking on. Would it not be better? And sometimes you have to demo by doing. So put together that really simple, like two PowerPoint slide, one PowerPoint slide business case that says, you know what, if we actually start looking at what spare parts we need, based on what we need this equipment to do, this is a better risk profile for the organization. But we also have to realize that we can't have the um, rubber boot syndrome where every maintenance guy keeps old rubber boots just in case the washer on the kitchen sink happens to go on Christmas Eve, okay? And you might need to create one. So we have to have, this comes down to trust between the different groups when one says it's there and one doesn't. And so I think a lot of this is about start small, build up that trust. And then if you do that repeatedly, some of the bigger initiatives that you want to do, people have built up a, the trust and it's not this big leap of faith that you're going to be able to deliver. It's, oh, this is the next thing in line. And so you have, I find as we're making these big changes and what feel like enormous step changes and you're going, okay, this really isn't that big, but it feels like it to that organization, you need to continue moving forward with some of these really tiny things. Everyone goes into work every day, believing they're going to have a good day and they're going to contribute and do their best. And if we can start to make people's jobs easier so they're not repairing the same thing yet again, you build by being at the front line, you build a rapport and a comfort level. And then that allows you to work towards getting some of your bigger goals um, moving forward. 
but I don't think you can leap in and suddenly tackle the most pressing need that the CEO came up with or the VP without having built that rapport. Again, it's back to people, it's back to individuals and recognizing where is everyone in their journey and helping them move forward. That to me is the culture. It's all those stories that we tell and what are your expectations and how do we support each other? Yeah, I love it. I love it. And I think that's, that's sort of like where I've been going recently is more of along the lines of this people and connection and trust and just real deep personal connection versus, you know, I think a lot of us in reliability or what I've seen has been, we talk about reliability culture as this like way to get higher availability or higher profitability, but we never talk about the people behind it. And, you know, like, I think that that's sort of the next level. And it's something that we don't talk about enough is creating that trust. And I actually, funnily enough, I read an article this morning um, based from Australia talking about trust and how that trust makes safer minds. And I like it directly applies to whatever you want to talk about, but they're just talking it from the safety lens. And so I guess, Michelle, coming to you, like, where do you see personal connection and trust in terms of these reliability initiatives? That's critical. I mean, you know, part of my definition of, of culture is it's, it's the behavior of the people within the organization. It's what people do when they think nobody's looking, right? Not what they do when the big boss shows up or the regulators show up. And, and so if you want to change the culture, you, you've got to go in and change the behavior of hundreds or thousands of, of people, and not just when you're looking and not just for the six months that it's an initiative, but you, you want it to go beyond that. And so, you know, like Sue talked about, getting people together in these small groups to work on an actual problem is enormous. One is that it, it builds trust. The other is it helps people, especially if you're doing it cross-functionally, it helps them understand the challenges that the other group faces. That, you know, like Sue said, we all come in want, wanting to do, expecting to do a good job every day. Very few people, there are probably some, uh, come in saying, I'm going to make a mess today. You could just say it's me, Michelle. It's okay. <laughs> no names. No names. <laughs> you know, there are very few people that, that are malicious about it, right? People want to do a good job, and it just doesn't always work out that way. And so giving people a chance to work together where they see, oh, I never realized, you know, I'm irritated at you because you don't have enough parts, and I need that part. I never realized the challenge you have by having so many parts. And maybe there's something I can do to help you out. For instance, I know that part up on the third shelf, you don't need any of those because we sold that piece of equipment 15 years ago. So if you get rid of all of those, do you have enough room to store the ones that I actually need? And so just getting those cross-functional teams together and building that personal trust so that everybody feels like we're all in this together. We all have our role to play, but we're all rowing in the same direction. Um, that goes a long way. It also helps to root out the real issues versus the issues we think we have. So spare parts always reminds me of a group that I was working with. They actually contracted out their spare parts management. And so of course, those guys were the bad guys. Every reliability problem they had was because of the spare parts guys. So the guy I was working with said, well, you know, that's a real problem, I'm gonna dig into it. So he pulls the numbers and he realizes that waiting on parts is only 2% of the delay in all of their work orders. He says, yeah, but people aren't reporting it. They don't understand. So he goes and tells everybody in maintenance, I need to know. If you wait eight seconds for a part, I need to know. Put it in the work order. So they do that for a month, and they go from 2% to 2.2%. And so they said, okay, turns out waiting on parts really isn't our issue. We've got some other issues. Let's dig in and figure out what it is. But until you get down and start doing the real work and stop talking in abstractions, it's very difficult to figure out what those things are. And until you get that cross-functional view of what, what are all the pieces of this puzzle, you're not gonna come up with a good solution. You're just gonna take the problem and toss it over the fence to the next guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love it. And it's actually, it's funny that you say that because the, the podcast that came out this week um, about RCM with Nancy Regan and Doug Plucknett and Aaron Evans, that actually Nancy and Doug's kind of number one tips for why RCM is successful was those, those bonds that you've forged in the, 
facilitation. And so it's just interesting that it comes up again. Now, Martha, you know, when you're working in these organizations, like you mentioned ice cream sandwiches, you mentioned like building those connections across departments, like obviously we're not as reliability people, we're not just in maintenance as Cliff wanted to, to note at the beginning. Like what other departments do we need to connect to and how do we, how do we go about that? I mean, I think you need to connect with all of them, <laughs> really. I mean, even uh, uh, just the simplest, where I worked with my last job, I mean, we had, uh, there was a group, it was, it, they were the asset management group, actually, and I was in the technical services group. <laughs> but we, we fo our, our team focused on maintenance, on the maintenance side, and they focus on the asset management group worked uh on the capital side and we never talked to each other <laughs> and and our my team was spread across the the province and yet we had an asset management or a strategic asset management uh manual which uh included of course in asset management it's you know capital and maintenance and there were a whole bunch of sections that weren't complete, but we didn't, we hardly talked to each other. So that, that know, touches home, Martha. Don't say it too, it? too oh, much. Okay. <laughs> I, oh, anyways, I could go. On. <laughs> but yeah, the more, you know, the more you, and, and as well, don't get me started on, on, uh, on the warehouse. <laughs> that was a whole other department. I don't even know where they were. <laughs> so um, the more you work together, the, the more effective you're going to be and the more you have the complete story, right, to move forward. Otherwise, everyone is working in their own little bubble, which that's turning into a popular word these days, um, <laughs> and making decisions with all, without all the information. Everyone is making decisions without all of the information. And it's, it's not a, you know, I, to me, it's not a set up for success for sure. Yeah, it's tough. Now, Cliff, the last question I wanted to get into, I mean, we got one about mobile CMMS and transitioning from paper to, to mobile. All I'll say for that one is just uh, shout out to my friends at Upkeep uh, on upkeep.com. <laughs> just, just plug out there. Now, Cliff, let's talk about, sustaining change like that was a few of the questions that came in were around how do we sustain change you want to give us your thoughts on that yeah it's going to be pretty much the same answer as i've given earlier in that this all has to be driven by measures um, you can't you know the change process is, is a fairly long change process uh, it, it's you know establishing where you are establishing where you want to be understanding how you've got to get there and everything and what measures and everything that need to be in place. Um, but if you don't have the measures uh, that will indicate whether you're actually succeeding and getting where you need to be, then it's not going to be sustained. Uh, it has to be through these measures, which in turn will drive the behaviors. And then if we drive the behaviors, then it's sustainable. But um, trying to sustain it by, by force or, or by you know, telling people they have to do things. It, it, it's not likely to work. It's having people to understand that whole change process so that people will understand, you know, why we are doing things. And, and very often the, the, the mistake that I see is that people get told everything around what and then never anything around why. And, and they understand the what, but they really don't understand the why. And so they don't buy into it. They don't get that feeling that they're part of it. You know, that everyone's talked about, about feeling that they are part of the success and, and, and that, you know, they can trust people around them. And, and this has to be done again in an organizational setting. Uh, you can do all the wonderful things you like in maintenance. And if we want to pick on procurement and the stores, if they're still going along their little sweet way, nothing changes so you know one of the the the, the shout outs for asset management um, and and i say asset management i mean it in the true sense as in fifty-five thousand and the bigger holistic point of view there are two little paragraphs in the appendix of of uh, 
2018. And it talks about the need for all departments that are impacted and influenced by maintenance understand what they are impacting and how they are impacted, and then how what maintenance does will impact their departments. You know, will we achieve these? And, and if we don't have that holistic approach, then sustainability becomes difficult. Love it, love it, love it. <clears throat> so we've got to wrap up here. So I guess my, my note or my, my note on, on sustainability, there's a couple of things that I want to just touch on briefly. One is, is empowering your people and allow them to take action because otherwise if you're just micromanaging everybody, if the micromanager leaves, then they don't know what to do. Um, and just like having that level of personal leadership at your site, personal leadership being, you know, yourself, your, you know, like we talk competency, we talk, you know, belief systems, we talk that type of stuff. And it's like, if you know what you're supposed to do and why you're supposed to do it and you have, autonomy or empowerment to do it, then likely you're going to do it. Otherwise you're likely not. So that's the last note on that. Now plugs. Cliff, do you want to kick us off? What do you have to plug? Um, we have to plug is shout out today for PMAC, uh, the asset management specialists. <laughs> um, no, really PMAC has a, uh, a really good online course uh, dealing with asset management and I, I really see the benefit um, when, when we look at the, the standards that are out there and all of the things we talked about about these different departments and the impacts and everything like that uh, that's what's needed to get this sustainable change and to move you and it all talks about cascading goals from the strategic objectives right down and, and we looked at things like you know spare parts and things like that does that part, you know, does that form part of your risk analysis and all of these things that it, it, it drives? So um, uh, I know Martha's already been through it, so she's she enjoyed it. Um, it it's that's my plug today is for PMAC. And um, but if we need anything to do with maintenance and the outcome reliability, please look at uh, peopleandprocesses.com. We'll be there. <laughs> Yeah, and if you're, if you're, we have like a fair panel of PMAC members here, but if you're looking for PMAC, it's just PMAC.org. So check that out. Martha, anything to plug? Well, I definitely, speaking of PMAC, I've, I I'm, want to plug Main Train 2020. And uh, I'm on the, the conference. Uh, Online version. <laughs> well, and I don't know if anything's officially been uh, advertised about that yet, but uh, it was supposed to be in St. John, New Brunswick, September. Uh, but uh, we, yeah, we don't know what's happening officially yet. Or I don't think it's officially, but there will be some kind of conference. So uh, the abstract, it, uh, keep, um, keep your eyes open for more information to come on uh, Main Train 2020. Uh, for at, we're definitely still looking for abstracts. Uh, uh, so uh, keep your eyes open and get those abstracts in. And uh, it's, it will still be, a, I think, a great event. It would have been much better, I think, or not better, it would have been lovely to have everybody in uh, St. John, New Brunswick. Um, but uh, what going forward, it's going to be awesome. And Again. Main Train 2020 uh, hosted by me, right? <laughs> <laughs> so so it's still be September the 15th. <laughs> awesome. Now, Michelle, anything to plug? Yeah, we'll be at uh, the SMRP conference in Columbus, Ohio, hopefully, in October, mid-October. We will be running a one-day version of, of our workshop with the board game. Um, so if anybody's out there, that's great. We've got a couple of books on Amazon, Don't Just Fix It, Improve It, and Level 5 Leadership at Work. And I also wanted to add in terms of sustainability, um, I think one of the things to keep in mind is it's about changing people's habits. That the effort to, to make the change is going to be a big push. But ultimately, if you're going to sustain it, you really need to change people's habits. 
and I've seen a lot of this with COVID between hand washing and mask wearing, um, three things that are important with changing a habit. Number one, make it easy to do. Number two, make it popular. Make sure that everybody's doing it so that you feel, um, you feel a little bit of peer pressure to do it. And the last thing is make it meaningful. Make sure people understand why they're doing it, not, not just uh, what they're doing. And make it for 66 days. <laughs> repetition, that's a good point. Maybe that's a fourth thing, right? You need repetition if you're going to create a new habit. Absolutely. Perfect. I love it. Now, Susan, anything to plug? Um, well, I mean, Martha and Cliff have both tackled the PMAC one. So, I mean, what can I say? We've got MMP certifications, AMP certifications, main train. Uh, we're working on competency standards and aligning it globally and that sort of thing. So that's a project I'm heavily involved with right now as well. Um, if you want to get a hold of me, Step Consulting. Um, and a, a large part of this is about for me, it's sustainability. Figure out where everyone in your organization is and help them on their journey, right? With that is a big part of your culture. Are you helping people or are you berating them? So I strongly think this is about building internal competency, capability, and aligning to your overall organizational goals, objectives, metrics. So thank you very much, Rob, for hosting. No, thanks for joining yeah, us. And, you, you know, thank you, Susan. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you, Martha. Thank you, Cliff. <laughs> Cliff's got the book going. <laughs> Maybe your book's in the, oh, the yeah. <laughs> You need books. Okay. <laughs> I think I had that one and I, I gave it to my manager, so I don't have it anymore. <laughs> They're very yeah. cheap, Rob. You can get them at a reasonable price. <laughs> there we go. There's my book. You can't work. see it. Oh, no. There. Oh, I see it. <laughs> so. No, perfect. Yeah, thanks for joining us. And then for me, I mean, plugs, obviously, follow Rob's Reliability Project. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Follow Rob's Reliability Project on LinkedIn for the best memes in the industry. <laughs> That's no doubt about that. Um, <laughs> We have next Wednesday, May 27th, if you're on live, we're hosting a reliability and maintenance in mining webinar. That'll be at 5.30 p.m. Eastern. If you're in Australia, it's like 7.30 in the morning ACT time zone. I'm not sure what that means, but it's actually Thursday morning. So if you're live on this one, check that one out. Next week, we got Jason Apps. We have Steve Doby. We have Jeff Naylor and Dare, I forget what his last name is, but we got a great group of panel for that one. So that one will be fun. And other than that, you know, thanks for joining us and stay tuned. I may be booking a hangout for either this Friday or next Friday, but we'll see. So thanks for joining us today. Thanks, thanks Rob. Rob. Thank you, Rob. Thanks.